Exodus chapter 32 is where we're, we're starting. If you're new, you haven't been here, don't feel like you're having to catch up or you're going to be behind. Um, but what we have been doing for the last many weeks is we've been walking through the book of Exodus, looking at the major themes. So we're not moving through it verse by verse, but we're actually taking several chapters at a time and just looking at some of the broad themes that we see as we look at this foundational book in the Old Testament. Exodus is a narrative, so it's written in a certain literary style. It's written in a, in a genre, and a narrative is the telling of a story. Not every book of the Bible is, is a narrative. Not every book of the Bible is a telling of a story, but Exodus is. And Exodus is telling the story, in summary, of how God interacts with his people, how God provides for and keeps his promises to his chosen people. Exodus is incredibly foundational for anybody to understand the whole of the Old Testament and really for anybody to truly understand the whole of the New Testament. There are many books in the Old Testament, but uh, Exodus is unique in that it tells very specific foundational stories about God's chosen people and about God's word and, the, and God's ways. So Exodus begins with uh, the fulfillment of promises made. So it starts off right out the gate of God saying, I am keeping my word to you. It starts off by Israel becoming a great nation. At the end of Genesis, uh, it was... Um, Jacob and his, his sons. At the beginning of Exodus, they had become a great nation of what scholars believe to be two million people. It says in Exodus 12 that there were 600,000 men. So there's some pretty concrete information there that they became a great nation. And you see fulfillment after fulfillment after fulfillment of God saying, you are mine, you are my chosen people, I have, I have picked you by my providence, by my mystery, and I will be your God and you will be my people and I will take care of you. And he freed them from the Egyptians, and he opened the Red Sea as they crossed. And we've already talked about how God has given them the law. So these are foundational things. I mean, if you remove the law from the Old Testament, then you're sunk, you're, you're lost. So even in the book of Exodus, we have the Ten Commandments. We have instructions for righteous living. And as we've worked our way through the book of Exodus, uh, we are at the end now. And what is happening here at the end is the, the people have been freed from Egypt, They've crossed the Red Sea, and they've been camping at Mount Sinai, where half of the book takes place, is Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, there's a conversation between God and Moses. Moses is the mediator between God and his chosen people, and we see that that's a type of Christ. Type meaning, uh, it's a literary uh, uh, ter term that says it's a representation, or a veiled image of something greater to come. So it's a foreshadowing saying that right now this is an image of something greater that's coming in Christ. And so, so Moses is the one who is talking to the people for God. Moses is having a conversation with God on Mount Sinai, and several things happen in this conversation. First, there's the giving of the law, that God is making known what his law is. All right, and now if we just pause for a quick moment and think how, how great that is, that God is not leaving the people up to just figure it out, to go by their gut or their instinct or their whim or their, a vote, but God is saying, this is my law. This is now how you should live as my people. I'm your God and you're my people, and this is what it looks like. That's the first part of three parts of this conversation. 
The second part of the conversation, Moses comes down and presents the law to the people, and the people emphatically say in Exodus 24, we will do this. All that you have said, I've said is good, and we will obey. And there's a sacrifice, and there's a consecration of the law that is written, and the people, where there's a shedding of blood, and it's sprinkled. We went through that whole process. And the people say, yes, we've heard you, God, and we will do what you have now said. And then Moses goes back up to the mountain for the third part of the conversation. And we've kind of been in the third part of the conversation for the last couple of weeks, because the third part of the conversation is God saying, okay, now, therefore, this is what communion with me looks like. This is what life with God looks like. I'm, I'm outlining it. Once again, I've told you about the law and the Ten Commandments and what righteous living looks like, but this is what interaction between a holy God and sinful man looks like. And in this text, what, we have, what we've been looking at is the giving, the giving of the instructions of the tabernacle and the giving of the instructions of the priests. And we talked about the garments and the different things that they're wearing and even the furniture within the tabernacle. That God is saying, that God is prescribing interaction between you and me has a look to it. And there's symbolism and there's representation there, but God is saying, I will tabernacle with you. I will be with you. I will live with you, but it's on my terms. God's building built God's ways and God's mediators, God's moderators, God's ways through the priests and the priesthood. So we've been through all of these things. So Moses is still on the mountain having the third part of this conversation, the unpacking of what it looks like for man to exist with God. And during that time on the mountain, something very tragic happens. And if you have been in Sunday school as a child, you've probably heard the story of the golden calf. And it's an act of, of massive, categorical rebellion against God. While... They're at the base of Mount Sinai while Moses is meeting with God, while there is uh, smoke and thunder rising from the top of the mountain, the people rebel. Sinai. S-I-N-A-I. Sinai. We'll get to Sinai later. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Mount Sinai. S I N A I. All right. So, with that being said, what we're going to do is we're going to read chapter 32, 33, and 34. Now, again, what we've been doing is we've been working our way through through fairly large chunks, large chunks of scripture and looking at the theme. So I'm going to ask that you follow along and you kind of stay with me, whether it's your app or you have uh, a paper Bible or a scroll, whatever it is, uh, I'm going to ask you to follow along. I have the ESV, and this is the story of the golden calf, okay? It's a couple pages, so bear with me, and then we're going to go back through and look at this, but this is important. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, and they said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. 
So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Moses. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose early the next day and offered burnt offering and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, and they have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Verse 11, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people when you have brought them out of the land of Egypt in great, with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians, Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven in all, in all this land, and I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken, spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that had that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written, and the tablets were the word of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua, who was with Moses, Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf and he made that they had made, and he burned it with fire and ground it to power, powder and scattered it in the water, and he made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of the Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil, and they have said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we did not know what has, be, what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go up to and fro from the gate, from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. That, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon this land. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. 
So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin, and they have come, they have, they have made for themselves gods of gold. And now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot out of your book, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit upon their, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made a calf, the one that Aaron had made. Chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel out before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, <clears throat> that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out of the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, each would stand at his tent door, and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. Then Moses entered the tent. The pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his own tent door. Then the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to, and he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be now that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Chapter 34. 
The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone for the first, like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up to me in the morning on Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen through all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds get graze opposite of the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai. As the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all, uh, before all your people, I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. <coughs> Observe what I have commanded you this day, and behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst, and you shall tell, tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat their sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any god of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread seven days. You, just, you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the time of the appointment in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. And all that first opened the womb are mine, all the male livestock and the firstborn of the cow and the sheep. And the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you shall not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, and on the seventh you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruit of wheat and harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the, at the year's end. Three times, in the year you sh three times in the year shall all of your males appear before the Lord, the God of Israel, for I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the, before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything that is leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God, and you shall not boil a goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, 
As he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near to him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel what he was commanded. And the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil back over his face again until he went in to speak with them, with him. Pause for some water. <laughs> Thank you for following along. I know that is a, a long read, but as we are discussing these themes, it's important to see the, uh, the beginning and the end of this particular part of the story of the golden calf. So if we, as we take that in, all the things that happened, I want us to now just pause for a moment. And as we think back on a few of the major themes that we have continued to see throughout the book of Exodus, we've seen God's fulfilled promises, past tense. We see God fulfilling Present tense is many promises, being made into a great nation, the promised land that is coming, that the nation of Israel will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. We see types all throughout the writing of the book of Exodus, type as in this literary feature of a foreshadowing or something greater that is coming, something we don't know all the pieces yet. It's veiled, it's a little fuzzy, but it's an image of something greater that is coming. We see that in Moses. We see that in the tabernacle that the tabernacle is the place that you meet with God. But in the New Covenant, when, when Christ comes, that we can, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. We see that in the priesthood, that there is a representative between man and God. But by the work of the Holy Spirit, that, that Christ is now that eternal representative, and we have eternal access to God, and that we can approach God without the fear of death now. But they didn't understand all of that when Exodus was written. But we have a further understanding of God. So we see some of these themes of fulfilled promises and types. And we also see a theme of, of Exodus being a foundational, foundational for understanding how God interacts with his people. That if you, if you removed the book of Exodus from the canon, from, from the scriptures, you would, you would have a, a, a vacancy. You would have a void of understanding. And so throughout the course of time, since the time of, of, of Abraham and Moses, the people have, of God have gone back to the book of Exodus to understand God. Because it, it even applies now when we see God in the, new, in the New Covenant. The people of God would forever go back to the book of Exodus to understand how God, what God has said, how he interacts with his people, and how he keeps his promises. Understanding God is huge. And I wish there was a, a there's probably some better word for huge, but it's just unfathomably monstrous to understand the value of this content of understanding God, that God is there, that God has spoken, that God can be known, and we are to understand him, and that he doesn't keep secrets, 
He doesn't make this a riddle. This isn't some maze that we have to just trial and error navigate through life, but that God has made it known that is actually literally, in this context, written in stone what his call upon our life is. So understanding God is huge. Now, let me give a silly example. But when I think of how big and important it is to understand God, I think about trying, and this is a silly example, trying to understand women. Okay? It's just complex, right? And there's a difference there. I don't get everything. You could read books and books and books and go to conferences. Uh, women are, are just way different, turns out, than men, you know, and how they act and how they think and process and gifts and skills and abilities and, and consume information. That there's a fundamental difference between men and women, fundamentally. And, and, and biblically, we see that as a very beautiful thing, that, that it's, it's a complementary thing. It's a completing thing there that we see in Scripture, that men and women are designed to be different, uh, designed to be fundamentally different. And so as a guy who is married to a, a woman, as we got married and went to our first marriage conference or two, I began to see um, that she's just, just, she just thinks and processes way differently. And it's important. If I'm going to desire to be a good husband, if, I'm, if I desire to to lead and love and care for her well, it's important for me to understand her as best as I can, right? You agree with that? However, there's a second half to that. The second half of that is, is understanding myself. Because as I become enlightened into trying to figure out Lauren and how she thinks and how she responds and her gifts and her talents, I begin to see things about myself and my tendencies and my habits and my nature that I didn't quite see before. And so as I look at her and I see light being sh shown on the nuances of her as a woman, I begin to see differently myself. Now, obviously, all examples have limits, and, and th this is a limited example, and, and I'm not calling Lauren, God, and me, sinful man. But sometimes it might be true, you know? Uh, <laughs> but if you, see what I'm, if you see where I'm going there, all right, that what we see in Exodus is this, is this vast uncovering in a lot of ways through the very first time of who God is and how he acts and how he interacts and what he expects. And that's what we've been talking about. That the foundations that we see in the law, that the foundations that we see in the promises, the foundations that we see in the tabernacle, that the foundations that we see in the righteous, the laws for righteous living, the foundations that we see in the priesthood, are all this foreshadowing of something greater, but this is how you live now. And in the middle of all of this, we see a story of man. And so what we see in the story of the golden calf is not a unpacking of, of an understanding of man, but we see a case study of, of precisely what man is like by nature in, in, in the golden calf. See, in, in the book of Exodus, what we see, we have the privilege of hindsight. And so what we see throughout the Old Testament is something that we, we've talked about this before, but we see something called progressive revelation. 
that the children of Israel and even Moses himself didn't have a full understanding of what the new covenant in Jesus Christ dying on the cross, born of a virgin, didn't know all of that stuff yet. They just knew that a promise was made, that something better was coming, and to put faith in those promises. We get to look back and see Jesus and then look back further and see the covenant in Mount Sinai and the law and the tabernacle. And we can, we can put all those pieces together and we say, wow, look at that. They didn't know all these things. They knew, they knew 20%. But then later in the prophets, they got another 30% and 40%. And next thing you know, it, was come to, it came to completion in the work of Christ. And we, look, we get to look back. And we believe that scripture teaches that the canon, that the Bible is now complete, that we're not waiting for the next book to be written. So all that God is desiring to communicate to us on this earth has been communicated to us. It's done. We have the full counsel of God that he's looking to give to us. So we can look back at this progressive revelation now complete, and we can see the picture of what God has planned. And and it came to, to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But that's not the case for the nature of man. Man is not being progressively revealed to be be greater and greater sinners. We've always been great sinners. And we were great sinners then. We're great sinners now. And and we've always been bad. We've always been depraved. There's always been sexual immorality. There's always been homosexuality. There's always been murder. There's always been deceit. There's always been rape. There's always been stealing. There's always been genocide there's always been the worst types of sin always we're not progressively getting worse we've always been there and by God's mercy in some pockets of time some of that heinousness is is maybe held back a little bit but we've always been bad all the time and what we see in the in the telling of the golden calf is a fundamental foundational understanding of the true nature of man of every single one of us if you're breathing air through your nostrils This explains our nature. So throughout the book of Exodus, we're seeing a revealed nature understanding of God. And through this particular story, we're seeing a revealed nature of who we really are. And this is is difficult. This is difficult because I, I too, am guilty of reading something like the story of the golden calf and making broad, sweeping statements like, Gosh, how dumb could they be? I mean, th- their path through the Red Sea was only weeks prior. It-, it wasn't generations ago. They walked the dry ground with their feet. And with their eyes, they saw the plagues. And with their, with their sensor, the, sens- the sensory ability that we have in our bodies, they, they felt Mount Sinai shake, and it said that they were afraid. And they told Moses, protect us, lest God kill us. And, and they saw the giving of the law. So they saw all these things, and it's too cheap. It's too easy for us just to say, well, they were particularly stupid, or they were particularly dumb, or to make the next statement of, I would never do that. But I find myself saying that, like, Surely, if I would have had those experiences, then I wouldn't have fallen so bad. And it's cheap. Let me tell you why it's cheap, because it's an immediate moral superiority complex. If if any one of us, myself included, looks at this story and says, I would never, then immediately you're rewriting scripture. Immediately immediately you're, 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 you're making three categories of, of people. You're making God who cannot sin. And then 
people who wouldn't do bad sins and then people who do do bad sins. And you're, and you're rewriting things, and that's idolatrous to, to say that I am now the one who can rewrite the standards, and I'm now the one who says what I can and cannot do and what I cannot, can and cannot be categorized by. When we begin to write our own definitions of God or man or sin or the law, then we become idolaters. And when we begin to refuse to see the potential sin in our life, then we begin to say, I am powerful enough to keep myself from myself. And we're not. We have to have Jesus. We have to have Jesus all the time. Lord, I need thee. I need thee every hour. Every hour I need thee. We forget that. and We don't live that way. But we are still prone to fall. That we can still be moved by the Holy Spirit. We can still sing wonderful songs of worship and get that tingly, real feeling. And we can be spoken to by the word of God and the congregation and the fellowship of believers. And we can confess our sin. And then we can go home and, and, and still sin. That same day, later that hour, we can still have a terrible lustful thought. We can still have a, a, a moment of, of rage and bitterness towards somebody who's legitimately sinned against you in the same hour of our, of our very worship of our God. We can still curse God's name. And we've all done this before. Pride is the root of all sin. We saw that in the very fall of Satan. We saw that in the first sin of Adam and Eve. And if we begin to recategorize ourselves as surely not me, then we are taking one step forward in a major sin, the major sin of pride. Um, so if we ever say, surely I would never do those things, then we just have a misunderstanding of sin. We have a misunderstanding of scripture. We have a misunderstanding of our sin nature. Even Ephesians chapter 2 says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God. So, but by the grace of God, there go I. So I am capable as a Christian of, of terrible things. But by the grace of God, there go I. If we are arrogant enough to say that our past experiences with God is a cure for all of our potential sin, then we just have a misunderstanding of Scripture. And we cannot say that. And so if we say, of the children of Israel, because you experienced these wonderful things, therefore, that eliminates all temptation, no matter how heinous, that's just not the way it works. It's not what scripture teaches, and it's not the nature of man. God is progressively, in this context in the Old Testament, revealing himself and his plan to his people. And man is not progressively showing himself, but man is affirming that he is totally depraved in this story, which we know to be true even now. And these are things that we are supposed to learn about ourselves as we look back on the story of the golden calf. Romans chapter 3 says, There is none righteous, no one who understands, and no one who seeks God, that all have turned aside, and they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And to truly get the gospel, to truly get what Christ has done to us, we have to see that we've got nothing. 
that we are not morally superior than some other race or some other age or even the children of Israel in this context. So the question then to ask is, how does the story of the golden calf help us learn about ourselves? And I'm going to run through nine points. This is going to be quick. But this is things that we know and we can learn about ourselves as we see the story of the golden calf. Number one, first thing that we see is that God has made his ways known, that he is knowable. He isn't hiding himself. He isn't keeping himself from us. Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8, the children of Israel heard the word of the Lord and the law, and they said, we have heard you and we will obey. Not we will just kind of mosey along in the right direction morally. We have heard and we are committing ourselves and we will obey. Romans chapter 1 tells us that God has made himself known to us, that God has made it plain to us his ways, because God has shown it to us. In Jeremiah 31, there's a prophecy of a new covenant coming, which we are living under now in, in Christ. And that new covenant is a law that is not written on stone, but it is written in your heart. So if you're a Christ follower, you not only have the law spoken to you through the word of God, but you have the word of God written on your heart, that there is something supernatural that non-believers don't have, that nudges you in ways that not non-believers cannot be nudged, that convicts you and shows appropriate guilt in your life of God's way. This is my plan for you, unlike anybody outside the bond of Christ. So number one, that God has made his ways known to us, just like the children of Israel. Number two, sin starts with a question. Or at least questioning an unfulfilled desire. Universally. And the children of Israel in Exodus 32 says that when the people saw that Moses had delayed, so immediately they looked at their situation, they said, this doesn't make sense to me, is what they said. And Moses delayed. What's wrong? Something's gone wrong. This isn't right. And I mean, how many times do your finances just get totally screwed up, or a relationship tanks, or you get fired, or you get sick, or somebody is angry at you, or you have a habitual sin that you just can't get out of? Something happens, and you don't. it doesn't make sense to you. Why is this happening to me? I don't understand why am I the one that's getting crapped on all the time? Or why, does, why don't things work out for me? Why can't I ever get ahead? And we all have these ups and downs in life where we look at the future and it doesn't make sense. And the natural response is for us to question. And questions are not bad. Questions are good. But they must be answered in the scriptures. And when they're not answered in the scriptures, they're answered with sin. We begin to find our own answers or our own solutions. And that's what leads us to deeper and deeper levels of sin. We answer our own questions our own way, and we seek to fulfill our own desires our own way, and that results in lies and lusts and sexual sin and gossip. The bells are off. Time change. I was like, man, am I that far behind? <laughs> All right? <laughs> so um, it is now 9.30, as we would typically be starting the class. So thanks, time change. Um, so sin always starts with a question. Um, and it's also worth noting here that you need to have good people around you, and you need to be sitting under good leadership. If you move away from Charleston, you've got to find a good church. The children of Israel had a lot of things going for them, and individual sin in this situation is shown at the corporate level. 
everybody was responsible. People died for this sin. A, a, a nationwide curse was put, a plague was cur- put on this, on this, was, was put on this, peop- the peop- this people group, excuse me. Not just Aaron. Aaron will be held responsible at a whole different level. But this is individual sin shown at a corporate level. That we all have tendencies to follow the crowd. That we are the crowd. Which means it's all the more important to make sure that the people around us are in the word. That people are speaking truth to us and calling out our sin and not letting unconfessed sin go. And that's hard. That's easy to say. It's easy for me to, 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 to sprinkle out there all these nice things. But community is hard. Being in a community group is hard. Being in a meaningful community group is hard. Having godly relationships that are not just, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, so let's go to Bible study together. But like, I'm going to get into your stuff, and you're going to get into mine. I'm going to tell you things that I am embarrassed about, and I don't like, and I don't appreciate. But that's difficult. And to, be, and to sit under authority that is of, of God. And they went to their authority figure. They went to Aaron, and, and he didn't stop them. And if you find yourself listening to me or listening to Buster and we are veering and we're straying away from what the Bible has to say, you need to leave this place. You need to run from this place and find a place that is, that is founded on a foundation other than man. And when you move away, when you go to a different church, you need to find a church that is led and built on the scriptures, which is uncommon. So sin always starts with a question or at least questioning an unfulfilled desire. Number three, sin is always rebellion. Always. Um, one definition of sin in, flip, flip through different theological dictionaries, is uh, personal rebellion against God. First John 3, 4 says that sin is lawlessness, or the removal of the law. And so if you have the law, which is given by God, and you remove it, then you are in personal anarchy. You're in rebellion. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 23, speaks of uh, rebellion being like the sin of, of witchcraft, which is idolatry. So you can see these connections that sin isn't just sin. Sin isn't like, well, we all sin, and we just have to make sure we confess to the little ones and really be really, be really careful that we don't do the big ones. No, sin is rebellion. Sin is idolatry. Sin is as witchcraft. And Israel in this story, offered sacrifices and offerings, and they celebrated and they partied with the golden calf. And they said, you, golden calf, are the one that split the Red Sea. You're the reason why we're here. Um, Apostasy. Number four, God's wrath always flares when we sin, but his mercy and grace keeps us from extinction. Chapter 32, verse 2, verse 10 says, that my wrath may burn hot against them. But in verse 14, it says that the Lord relented, relented, that God gives opportunity for repentance, which is what happened here. That, that, that judgment says sin deserves death. And only out of God's grace and mercy does he said, I will withhold to give you opportunity. And those 3,000 that were killed were 3,000 that did not repent. It was not a random killing, but it was a group of people who said, we will still worship this golden idol. And they were killed. Uh, Number five, forgiveness comes, but consequences are real. 
even though that God forgave his people and said, you could still go to the promised land and I will still go with you and I will still fight for you and I will still go before you and I will still be the ones that, that clears out all the ites before you and I will give you the land that is flowing with milk and honey. There were still 3,000 who died. There was still a plague. There was still a presence of God that was withheld at a certain level. Just like now, if you sin, when we sin, we still have baggage that we take into relationships. And we still have scars. You still have debt, figuratively or literally, for mistakes that you've made, but that, but that God will continue to keep his promises. Number six, God is still good. He still keeps his promises. He still goes with us. He still fights for us, and he will still go before us. In chapter 33, verses 1 and 2, he says, I will go before you. And I will give you the land that I have promised you, and an angel will go before you, and I will be the one who drives out the inhabitants of the land. When we, number seven, when we question God and we ask him for his affirmation, like when Moses asked God, said, God, if you're going to go with us, show yourself to me. When we question God and we ask him for affirmation to show us himself, he will do it, or he will say, I have done it already, and you just need to open your eyes. But it often might not look like we think. So many times we approach God and we say, God, just show me your way. Tell me what I should do. I want to see. And when God showed himself to Moses, he didn't show all of himself to Moses. He said, you can't see all of me. It is not for us to know everything about God. That would make us God. We will continually be in a state of not knowing everything. That's what faith is. That's what it means for God to be God, for us to not be God. And so God, by definition, knows more than we do. But God can still show himself to us, but it doesn't mean he will reveal his entire perfect plan. It doesn't mean God will say, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you know some supernatural way that one day you will be married and it will be blissful and you will have children and you will have financial security and you will die one day, but it's going to be nice and easy in your sleep, and your kids will live beyond you in this total unpacking. And he doesn't ever say that. He never makes that promise. But he does say, I will be with you right now through this, through that. I will be with you. You don't know what tomorrow holds, and I'm not going to tell you, but I will show myself to you today. And that's what you need to see. And if you're not seeing that, and I'm going to ask you to open your eyes because I've already shown it to you. Week number eight, we can trust God to do his glorious part. I want to read chapter 34, verses 39. Um, 34, verses 5 through 9. It says that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, Moses, there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but will by no means clear the guilty. Verse 8, And Moses quickly bowed his head, towards the earth and worship and he said if now i have found favor in your sight please let the lord go in the in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance 
that our God is a God of mercy and grace and who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we can trust that. Not just read it, but we can trust that. And finally, number nine, we are still called to righteous living. We are not just let, let, let go to sin and repent and sin and repent, but there is still a call in our life. And after the children of Israel sinned, in a grave way, there were bullet points that were set out by God. He said, when you go into the land, do not make a covenant with the inhabitants. It will be a snare to you, but rather go in and tear that stuff down, eradicate it, burn it to the ground so that it won't be a future temptation because you're temptable. Observe the culture that you're living in, set up walls of protection, and be ruthless to take out potential opportunities of sin. That's the call in our life. He told the people, make no, cast, no gods of cast metal before you, and you would think after a story like this, it would be like, no, duh. <laughs> okay, you'd think that. But how many times, even in our own culture, do we have these no-duh gods in front of us that we're not bowing down, we're not worshiping, but you know what we are doing? We're giving the majority of our time to it. And if it doesn't go our way, it wrecks us emotionally. And that's what, that's what it means to worship, you know? And when we're trusting in that thing to bring us happiness, when we're trusting in that job or that person or that relationship or just the comforts of life, and if not, then, then things just crash for me emotionally. And that, that's, that's worship. So how do we look at the things in our life? We don't have a golden God in our living room, but we might have that in our bank account or in our, in whatever. It says, keep the feast of unleavened bread, which means remember. That's what it means. It means remember. Put yourself in places of remembrance. We're called to worship weekly, and you know that, but we're called to be here not when it's most convenient, but we're called to worship weekly with the people of God, that we're called to be around brothers and sisters of Christ in a meaningful way, not just coming and sitting in a room and then leaving, but we're called to be together and to love together and to push each other and to sharpen each other together. It says, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you that we're supposed to camp in the word of God. We're supposed to be in the word of God. It's supposed to be a consistent, continual part of our life, not as an act of guilt, but an act of fresh water that we're drinking so that we can be sure that we are standing firm in the promises that he has made. So we see the story of the golden calf as a representation of just our nature, our everyday nature. Now, let me wrap up by, by reading this, and this, I think, is a, is a cool ending. Exodus chapter 34, verse 29 says, when Moses went down from Mount Sinai with the two new tablets of the testimony in his hands as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Moses and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near to him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. And after all the people of Israel came near. He commanded them all the things that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. When he came out and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, and the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter 3, 
says this. Since we have such a hope, meaning a hope in Christ, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord or turns to Christ, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with an unveiled face, behold, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. With Christ, we are being changed. With Christ, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. That we have an opportunity to unveil, that we, by, by the work of the Spirit, we are unveiled to see the fulfillment of what Moses could not see and that we can gaze in the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's not just this, oh, well, that's kind of cool, but it's that gazing process that is what's changing us and what's refining us and what's enlightening us to see things that we would not otherwise see, to live in a way that we would not have otherwise lived and to receive a promise that we would not otherwise receive. And that's the glory of the gospel. And so the story of the golden calf, the tragic and rebellious we, we cannot, we must not look at it as a, well, they were, st they were stupid. I mean, how dumb can you be? But rather a representation of who we are by nature and the caution by which we must live our life, but the glory and the freedom that we can find through Christ because he is the way that we make it through our golden calf moments. And we're all prone to that. There, but by the grace of God, but there, but by the grace of God, go I. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, for this story and for this unpacking of the nature of man and, and the goodness and grace of, of the mercy of the cross. And Father, that we are living on this side of the cross and we can look back and we can gaze without a tabernacle, without priests, without a veil over our eyes, without having to send somebody like Moses up to the mountain to talk to God for us. But Father, the Holy Spirit is here and with us. And, his, and, and your words are written on our hearts, and we have a, the complete written word of God. We have the, the gathering together of the believer. Father, help us to use these things for your greater purposes, that we would live lives that are holy and pure before you. That you would deliver us from evil as we seek to live this life in a way that is worthy of the calling. I thank you for this group, and I thank you for this day. It's the Lord's day. In Jesus' name, amen.